Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast in the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 21st of October 2019 and this is episode 133. On this week's podcast, Dr Amanda Nagel, Assistant Professor of Military History at the School of Advanced Military Studies at the US Army Command and General Staff College, talks about African-American servicemen during the Great War. Amanda, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. I wonder whether you could start by telling us how you became interested in the Great War. Oh, well, that's, uh, that's a great question. So my interest started far back when I was working on my bachelor's. Um, initially, I was just interested in African-American soldiers and started writing about both the Civil War and World War II. Um, and so one of, my, one of my projects, my final project that we did at my institution, which was basically um, a kind of uh, an, an honors thesis sort of thing, it's just a, just a, a finalized 20-something odd page paper on a research project on um, art, a, a topic of our choice. And so I chose stupidly to do a comparative study because, you know, uh, the worst thing I could have possibly picked. <laughs> but um, I chose to, to study uh, the 54th Massachusetts and the 332nd Fighter Regiment, so um, the Civil War and World War II. And as I was starting to talk to some of my advisors as I was moving into graduate school, one of them suggested that I look toward World War One because at that point, interest in African-American soldiers in World War One hadn't really been as covered in the scholarship. And, and of course, since then, it's, it's, been, uh, it's, it's become quite the field. But as soon as they said something, I was like, huh, that's really interesting. And then I started looking into World War One and thinking about, well, why aren't we talking about the Great War? Why does the United States ignore this conflict? Because it is so formative to what happens for the rest of the 20th century. That, and it's a foundation, really. And so that's from there, I just kind of kept going at it and going at it. And then, of course, once I, once I reached um, my PhD institution, I got to work with Sue Grazel uh, and her work on, on uh, Brit- the uh, British women in World War I. And so that kind of cemented my interest and kept me going with the Great War. <laughs> Now, today we're going to talk about African-American servicemen during the Great War. I wonder whether we could start by giving a bit of background on the political status of African-Americans in America and also what, what, was their, what was their pattern of military service from the Civil War up to the First World War? Yeah, uh, sure. So um, let's start with actually the background of service first before we get into the the context of uh, the, the political context of the time period. So we typically start, and, and most people typically start with thinking about African American soldiers in the Civil War. However, um, African Americans had served in and in a form of um, American army since the American Revolution. You had an, an entire regiment, so the First Rhode Island Regiment, um, devoted f- uh, to African Americans. You also had both enslaved and free blacks fighting throughout the Continental Army and through some of these militias. And so this is a very long tradition of service. Um, You see also um, service in the War of 1812 
And so by the time we get to the Civil War, the army, is, the, the Union Army is not taking in African Americans initially until the Militia Act of July of 1862. Okay, um, so this is about when the strategic context is shifting for the United States, that, that we're moving toward the Emancipation Proclamation. And so the Militia Act of July of 1862 will provide a few regiments for African Americans who volunteered for service. So as these volunteers are, are uh, compiled, it will create what's called the United States Colored Troops, or the USCT. So by January of 1863, with the Emancipation Proclamation, there are three USCT regiments in existence. We have one from the state of Louisiana, and this regiment actually had all lieutenants and captains as African Americans as well. So we also have, I mean, this is this is kind of that first one where we have officers for for these regiments. Now there was one uh, one regiment uh, from Kansas and one from South Carolina. At this point in 1863, we see the Emancipation Proclamation leading. Uh, the War Department to authorize recruitment for African Americans. So then by the time the Civil War ends, the USCT will represent roughly 10% of Union forces. But after the war, uh, the USCT will be disbanded, demobilized, um, and from that we will end up with four regular Army regiments by 1869. Uh, So these are the 9th and 10th Cavalry and the 24th and 25th Infantry Regiments. So from there, many of them will serve in the American West throughout the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, um, and into the 1890s. By that point, we have the Spanish-American War uh, uh, with Spain over Cuba. Um, You'll have both, well, all four of those regiments, as well as a number of volunteers, regiments that, that are created. And so this will also include the 9th Volunteer Infantry, the 8th Illinois Volunteer Regiment, and the 23rd Kansas Volunteer Regiment. Those three are the only volunteer regiments of African-American soldiers who will serve in Cuba. The rest of the, the, the men who will serve in Cuba are from the 9th and 10th and 24th and 25th Infantry. From there, the, they will serve again in the Philippines and continue to serve up until World War One. By this point, once we get to 1917 uh, and the United States starts thinking about joining the Great War, this is a point where the political context uh, in terms of, the, of, of equality, citizenship, rights, has shifted significantly for African Americans from 1865. So in the aftermath of the Civil War, you have the three, um, what, are, what are called the, the civil rights, uh, it, it kind of considered the civil rights uh, amendments. So the 13th Amendment, uh, abolishing slavery, the 14th Amendment, which recognizes citizenship for anyone born on U.S. soil, regardless of previous condition of servitude, uh, color, creed, religion, all of that. Then the 15th Amendment provides voting rights for African-American men. Well, in the meantime, we have various laws that are popping up, uh, not just in southern states, but in northern states as well, attempting to limit the rights of African-Americans as they are becoming free, essentially. And so they, they get the phrase, they will eventually receive the phrase Jim Crow. And so that comes out of, of the, the jumping Jim Crow song um, and, and caricature that was performed in the antebellum era by white actors in blackface. Now, the laws themselves restricted rights. 
uh, voting rights, economic rights, just about anything you can imagine. So frequently, the, it's it's seeking to control movement, bodies, economic possibilities. When these types of laws begin uh, after um, after emancipation, they're called the Black Codes, right? And and they vary from state to state. Some are more severe than others, but they strengthen after Reconstruction ends in 1877. They're finally solidified with the 1896 Supreme Court case of Plessy v. Ferguson. And so in this context, politically, African Americans in the U.S. can have a variety of rights depending on which state they're in. Uh, Frequently, southern states are going to be harsher with the laws, and we have what's called de facto segregation versus de jure segregation. So... Jim Crow would be de jure segregation, uh, whereas in northern states frequently it was de facto segregation, as in um, segregation by custom rather than by law. Now, in terms of the political status, again, rights varied from state to state, and access to those rights uh, varied. So what we see in the aftermath um, of the Civil War, and particularly with the 1890s, is that there's a new generation born free. And that makes a huge difference in terms of the way in which um, African Americans will advocate for rights and try to push back against these laws, even as they're cemented in 1896 with with, uh, Plessy v. Ferguson. So there's a lot of activism going on. And um, part of my work that discusses this time period before the Great War shows how African-American soldiers in the Spanish-American War and Philippine-American War are finding avenues through military service to try to push for those rights. And you'll even see a number of them, particularly from uh, the the Kansas Regiment that I had mentioned, the 23rd, uh, who will return back to the United States and become politicians themselves within their communities. So they're constantly thinking about rights. They're constantly thinking about civil liberties and the ways in which this is all happening. You add in that this is also part of the progressive era where there are new ideas about what a good citizen is and who a good citizen is. And so there's this emphasis on duty to the country um, that every citizen, especially good citizens, are active they're taking part in politics. They are, you know, they're helping their community. They're giving back. But they're also, if in a time of need, sacrificing their lives for the country. And so that's part of this context in terms of how African Americans are, are, are pushing back. Uh, you also have uh, people like Ida B. Wells, who's speaking out against lynching. Um, you also have in uh, 1909, the creation of the NAACP and various other rights organizations that focus on this. So even though we are seeing restrictions across the board in a lot of states, there are attempts frequently and consistently to push back against that and to try to expand rights for African Americans. So essentially many African Americans are seeing military service as a way of actually gaining political rights as their service to their country means that they have the equal rights because they are making obviously many in some cases the ultimate sacrifice for the wider wider state. 
some things that I'm writing about, and, and particularly my newly created concept of military citizenship, <laughs> this idea that what they what they are doing and what they have been doing is trying to use their service um, and and their time in uniform to access rights that they don't normally have as civilians, and then as they muster out, bring those rights back to their civilian lives and then expand that throughout the African-American community at large. So we reach World War One Now, what happens in World War One? Obviously, the Americans uh, get involved. They declare war in April 1917. Now, was the army right. um, built through volunteers or was it built through conscription? And what was the role of African-Americans? Did they uh, join up or were they conscripted? So we have a mix. Um, <laughs> there... Prior to uh, entry in April of 1917, uh, there were approximately 12,500 uh, African-American soldiers enlisted, um, and the, this was the composition of the 9th and 10th Cavalry and the 24th and 25th Infantry. Now, they obviously volunteered, and, and you will see others volunteering as well, but what we see is that the majority of African-Americans who will serve are actually drafted. So over 1 million African-Americans will take part in the draft, and this is out of roughly 24 million total Americans who will register under the Selective Service Act of May 1917. And that was mainly because um, within the, the, the first month of uh, American involvement in the Great War, President Wilson was very concerned because not enough men were enlisting and vol essentially volunteering between the declaration of war on April 6th and then the time the Selective Service Act w went into effect in May. And so his concern was, of course, well, we are going to fight this massive war. We need more men. So for the most part, um, uh, the, the, there are over one million African Americans who put their names in for, for you know, they, 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 they register for the Selective Service Act. And approximately 370,000 of those one, over one million will be drafted into the American Expeditionary Forces. So, and that's the section of the army that serves on the Western Front in Europe. Obviously, the, the American Expeditionary Force arrives in Europe in 1917. Now, what's, what are the conditions mm -hmm. of service for African-American soldiers? Were they in segregated or mixed units, and did they f serve in combat roles? So, they're, they're mostly in segregated units. Uh, and when I say mostly in segregated units, I mean that they are segregated from white enlisted and other white draftees. However, many of them had white officers. Now, the 92nd Division was officered almost entirely by African Americans, whereas the 93rd Division um, will have white officers for the most part. And, and when I say for the 92nd Division, mostly officered by African Americans, that's up until captain. Uh, above that, you don't really have any majors or lieutenant colonels or um, any anyone of a higher rank than that. And so, where do these units serve in France? So, for the most part, they're they're approximately in the same area. They're they're going to be um, in the the Meuse-Argonne offensive, uh, the Argonne Forest, specifically for the 93rd Division, um, and Chateaucerie. Now, the 93rd Division will be attached to the the French army whereas the 92nd Division will still remain under the command and control of the U.S. They will serve alongside French units, but command and control-wise, the, 90, the 92nd will be under the U.S. Um, for command and control, whereas the 93rd is 
almost entirely under French control, completely and utterly. Like they, they will fight alongside French soldiers. They'll be retrained by, uh, by the French, and they will also be um, e- uh, equipped and uniformed by the French. And what was their experience of, uh, I suppose, working with the French, uh, maybe working with the British, and also under their own commanders in France? So their experience um, is, and that's the thing, is is what we see with their experience with the French, it's going to influence how they return home. <laughs> Not just French officers, but, but even French citizens will view African-American soldiers as American. There's no hyphen it for, that, for, for, for them. They're American. And therefore, um, they're here to help, right? And so for France, that's, of course, a, a, a very interesting uh, dynamic because uh, the French will also have colonial uh, African soldiers taking part in the war as well. And the, the, those soldiers will not be treated anywhere near what we see African-American soldiers treated as um, from the French. But for the most part, they're, they're going to experience a variety of of interactions with officers um and so of course you're going to have some who who will treat them poorly because of the color of their skin and the assumptions associated with that whereas in other cases not so much uh where you'll you'll actually have um the focus on what their capabilities are like what they can actually do on the battlefield how successful uh, at least the 93rd Division will become, and 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 that, and so you'll end up with uh, a number of men from, I believe it's the 369th, who will earn the Croix de Guerre for their service in World War One. How were that? How effective were these units? I mean, this is obviously an impossibly difficult question to okay. answer. Um, and and how were that? Well, I suppose it's better to phrase it. How were they regarded by um, French commanders, British commanders, uh, in terms of combat performance? Because you know, again, that's such a subjective um, thing. Mm-hmm. But it's it's interesting just to get see whether these are these the the perceptions of service actually tackled racial perceptions that many of these officers may have had. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and, and that's one of the things is the Meuse-Argonne Offensive is a great kind of case study to compare how the French and even the, the, the British and, and, and the U.S. will view um, the 93rd versus the 92nd Divisions. Um, so remember, the 92nd Division has mostly black officers, whereas the 93rd Division, that was actually made up of, of mostly National Guard units. So the 92nd Division is mostly draftees, whereas the 93rd Division, those were National Guard units. They had had previous training and all of that, but they were mostly officered by whites. So what we see with Meuse-Argonne, it's, it's that stark contrast between uh, how the 92nd Division will perform and how that performance will be received versus how the 93rd Division will do. So, again, for the 92nd, they're going to remain under U.S. command and control, whereas the 93rd Division is entirely under the French. Now, the French were far more forthcoming with clear orders and objectives to officers in the 93rd. The U.S. Con- the, the, the U.S. controlled divisions, and they, this is across the board. This is not just the 92nd Division, but this is across the board for any U.S. controlled division. They were left more or less in the dark when it came to uh, the the, the Musercon offensive. Like it's 
there's an attempt to to keep this as secret as possible and and that means not providing proper information to the men who are about to go and and and, and attempt to seize the objective that 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 has been outlined for the 93rd this meant success so the 93rd consisted of the 369th 370th, 371st, and the 372nd Infantry Regiments. Now, it was never really officially formed as a full division because it never received um, any of the other supporting uh, regiments that would be necessary to complete a division. But in, in any event, these three regiments fought alongside the French 157th Division on uh, September 26, uh, 1918. And so... The 371st is going to experience the heaviest action. So what ends up happening at, at the start of, of the offensive is the 371st are going to be sent in to fill a gap between the 161st French Division and the 2nd Moroccan Division. In doing so, they could actually press forward. And so by September 28, their attack on a German position results in eh, what initially seemed like success because within a few minutes of the attack, the Germans quickly surrendered, or so they thought. The Germans jumped back qu quickly into the trenches and they opened fire. And so the 371st, they never stopped fighting. They kept going and eventually forced a German retreat and essentially achieved their objective. Now flip that for the 92nd Division. They have far more difficulty achieving their their objective in the same uh, in, in in the same offensive. So specifically, the 368th. So for the 92nd Division, they they're composed of the 365th, 366th, 367th, and 368th Infantry Divisions. Now the 368th um, on September 26th. They were ordered to attack. They were not given any artillery support whatsoever, nor did they have enough cutters for the barbed wire. So pretty quickly, disorganization and miscommunication uh, took hold. Within two days, it's mostly chaos and confusion. So on September 28th, when the, um, the 371st is actually doing quite well uh, in their sector, the 368th is just chaotic and confused. Um, there's a constant back and forth between the unit and um, and commanding officers behind the lines as to whether or not they should advance or withdraw. Part of what ends up going wrong here is that the French 4th Army and the 308th Infantry of the, the, the 77th uh, AEF Division will collapse. Despite making some progress, the 368th were ordered on September 30th to withdraw. So the very next day, Colonel James Moss of the uh, 367th will collect all of his black officers and NCOs to tell them that the 368th failed in the mission, and therefore African-American officers were considered a failure. What we see here is, is kind of this mass contrast between these two regiments, and it's it's used more so to discredit the entire division and not just the 92nd division, but all African-American soldiers because there was this almost this claim that blackness equated to incompetence. And in some cases, this is a way that, this is just a way to reinforce ideas that were held 
prior to U.S. entry into the Great War. So to, to, to give you some, some idea of what I mean here, um, in 1916, we have a number of bills that are put forth um, attempting to in, increase the size of the U.S. Army. This includes the National Defense Act of 1916. Part of the debate in Congress was whether or not African-American soldiers were capable of performing the duties that, that would be assigned to them. That becomes a point of contention. Um, and so you actually do have, and this is quite surprising, two senators from Mississippi, both just as racist as the other, on two different sides of this argument. You have one, James K. Vardaman, who said, who said, no, absolutely not. African-Americans should not, nor can they possibly be adequate soldiers. Also, what if they become trained in self-defense? and then bring that training home to Mississippi after the war. Also, oh, uh, and, and at least this is in Vardaman's opinion, what if there is a uh, president of the United States who is ignorant, I think would, would be the, the way in which he described it, ignorant of the social and cultural structure of the South and would take one of these regiments of African Americans to then occupy the South and deny rights to white Americans. That was, you know, that that was how he viewed it and, and, and part of his argument. But of course, it, it, it lay within this idea that African Americans could not possibly be competent soldiers. But then on the flip side, you had uh, Senator John Sharp Williams, also of Mississippi, who, who said, regardless of what you think of African Americans, they are citizens of the United States, and you cannot tell them they cannot register and enlist in the United States Army because they have every right to do so as a citizen. So this is this is a debate that that has been going on for for a couple of decades actually. Uh, it was something that was considered in the Spanish American War and the Philippine American War, and even before then. This idea that even though there's this tradition of military service among African Americans in the United States, that somehow with every conflict it's forgotten almost or ignored. I guess would would be the better way to describe that that it's. This history is ignored, this rich history of success and capability on the battlefield. How was um, the service of black soldiers viewed once the armistice had been called? So this is quite the interesting uh, twist. Now, the 369th, they, their, their nickname will be the Harlem Hellfighters, because many of them, did. it was a National Guard unit from the state of New York. They will return to the city of New York with a parade. There, there's, there, there's quite a uh, violent response to some African-American soldiers as they return home. For many, um, what will happen is that instead of uh, returning to live in the United States, black veterans will either ask to be um, discharged in France or once they come back to the United States and are discharged, they will move back to France because they experienced better racial relations, better conditions than they ever had in the United States. Now, um, Tyler Stovall's Paris Noir is is a great study of what happens after the war for um, African Americans who who move to France. Now, there are going to be others who, when they return, because they're the the 
the focus um, that the United States Army has on education, um, they'll return more educated with new perspectives than when they left home, when they left home. So they're going to have confidence and this experience in soldiering behind them. So they'll, they'll come home essentially with a new air that they did not have when they left. They now um, have at least some education that they did not have access to prior to service. That they've ex- they've spoken to people from other areas of the nation and really other parts of the world, and so they they have new perspectives um, as they return home. You'll have people who 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 come back and focus on activism. So, for instance, Charles Hamilton Houston. He was one of the officers that will be commissioned in Des Moines, Iowa, at the officer training camp that was set aside for African Americans. He was a first lieutenant in the 92nd Division, and he will come back to the United States. He will attend Harvard Law School, become the dean of Howard University's law, uh, School of Law, and while there, he will mentor Thurgood Marshall, um, the, the lawyer most well-known for um, arguing uh, the Brown v. Board case, 1954, to end segregation in schools. Thurgood Marshall will also be a Supreme Court justice um, in the end, but um, Houston will become uh, a lawyer for the NAACP and, and really focus on these sorts of things. And so you have this mix of how people are going to return. We also have race riots and, and, and what's referred to as Red Summer, the summer of 1919. Dozens of race riots across the United States. Hundreds of people will uh, die in the violence. And it, it's in this resurgence of nativism and racism that exists in the U.S. prior to the war, but it's ramped up almost during the war effort itself. And this also happens to coincide with the, the, the rise, the, the, I should say, the re-rise of the, of the Ku Klux Klan, uh, which is growing and, 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 and um, getting stronger in the late 1910s. And so on top of that, you have a few lynchings that will occur in 1919 of African-American veterans and at least one soldier who was on furlough during this time. So roughly the the numbers we have are not necessarily accurate, but there are, uh, I believe, 18 or 19 documented lynchings. And I say I believe because we only have documentation for some of them. And there probably were countless others that were not necessarily documented. But for the ones documented, we also only have names for a few of them because some were like a soldier, who, a, a veteran who was from Mississippi. All that appeared in the newspaper was African-American soldier from Pickens, Mississippi, lynched. It was about two sentences. It did not even include his name. So these are the sorts of things that, that, that are going to be part of what happens when they return. And so I'm sure you can see that this is, this is part of why that renewed activism in the 1920s and the Harlem Renaissance and really the frustration that, that we see in the art, the poetry, the writings of, of, of Harlem Renaissance artists are going to be very much focused on this frustration of fighting a war to make the world safe for democracy 
when coming home and being denied it. Do you think this, the um, experience of, of service in the AEF uh, for many African-American uh, soldiers actually had long-term political and social consequences, which in a way um, fed into the civil rights movement of the 50s and the 60s? Absolutely. So uh, if anyone is interested in uh, a book on <laughs> looking at the long civil rights movement, I highly recommend Glenda Gilmore's Defying Dixie. It's a fantastic study of post-World War I and moving into the 1920s, 1930s, and all the way up to the 1950s, looking at this sort of thing. There, there are plenty of other scholars who are also writing about this as well. Adrian Lent Smith wrote uh, a book called Freedom Struggles, African Americans in World War One. Yes, the, yeah, to, I guess to, to, to put it very bluntly, yes, this will have an impact upon the ways in which Many of not only these men, but also African-American civilians who do not go overseas view not just the war effort, but uh, the idea that military service and what this, uh, what this can bring to the community will be important for the civil rights struggle. I mean, you can see the legacy of that when we look at World War II and the Double B campaign. Um, that, that is a heavy focus on we are going to have victory abroad, but also victory at home against racism, bigotry, persecution, subjugation, right? All of that. People take, they, they learn the lessons from the First World War and, and ensure that their, their sacrifice and their service is not forgotten. Absolutely, yes. And so you even see um, in the aftermath of, of uh, the Great War, Emmett J. Scott, who is the Special Assistant Secretary to the Secretary of War, um, he, he also happens to be African-American. He will write a history of uh, African-Americans in the Great War. And so he, he, does a, he does quite the job compiling information and documentation about the war effort and about um, African-American service in the war itself. And so there's, there, there's a lot going on that um, in the aftermath of the war to try to make sure that what happens with the Spanish-American War does not happen with World War One. So what, what I mean there, what I'm referring to there is the, um, the focus in the Spanish-American War on Theodore Roosevelt and the Rough Riders as being the big victors of uh, San Juan Hill and Kettle Hill, when in fact you you actually have um, one of the African American units, the 10th Cavalry, taking a huge part in capturing Kettle Hill, but that part of the story is is kind of muddled and and kind of pushed off to the side, and so there there's definitely this attempt with with World War One to ensure that that legacy, that that memory uh, will be held on, even if it's just for the African-American community initially, and then will spread beyond that. But the impetus to report it, I think, is, is very important. And finally, Amanda, where can people learn more about this subject and your research? Well, so um, this subject, uh, I've already mentioned a couple of books that I would recommend. Um, definitely uh, Adrian Lent Smith's Freedom Struggles, I will say, that one was crucial when I was working on my dissertation. <laughs> I would also recommend Chad Williams' uh, Torchbearers of Democracy, African-American Soldiers in the World War I Era. It's a fantastic study on this same subject. And from my own work, I'm in the process of having an article peer-reviewed. I don't know exactly when it will appear, but it is 
in the work. I don't know if I'm allowed to say which journal it is. I don't know if that's kosher or not. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. Well, we'll look forward <laughs> to reading that in June. So, Amanda, thank you very much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Tom. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.